this morning, please, to 2 Corinthians, and we're going to start reading at verse 12, we actually start our study at verse 12, and we'll extend through chapter 2, verse 4. And while you're turning there, I'll tell you a story. It comes from a book called A Resilient Life by Pastor Gordon MacDonald, and he talks about a time when he was stranded in an airport and a lesson that he learned there. He and several others were bumped on their flights because the flight was overbooked. It was late, and McDonald was tired, and the gate agent was firm that there was not going to be a chance for anybody to get out that had been dumped for the next two days. Anybody ever been there? You know, I've been there. You ever been there? Well, McDonald says, I checked into a room, but returned the next morning, hoping against hope that there might be a chance for me to catch some flight. Seated next to him was this man that appeared to be sort of a seasoned traveler. Looks like he had gone through this kind of thing before. And he waited for a lull in the crowd. It was about mid-morning, and I think even his temperature started to rise. McDonald says he got a little red in the face, and he walked up to one of the gate agents and uh, stormed, literally stormed at the agent, and then came back and waved the ticket that he had gotten, the boarding pass that he had in front of the others that were sitting there. And he said, I went over there. I used every bit of profanity I could think of. I told the agent what I thought of him, what I thought of his airline. I demanded a seat on the next flight, and I got it. And if you'll do the same thing, you'll get a flight too. And then he sat down pretty definitely. Well, McDonald said he did go to the gate agent, but instead of taking the man's advice, he said to the agent, Sir, I've been told that if I be mean and nasty to you, it's possible you'll give me a boarding pass. Frankly, says, I don't believe in yelling and swearing at people, but I really would like to get home. Do you think there's any chance you could get me out? The gate agent smiled and pleasantly kind of nodded at him and said, I'll see what I can do. And McDonald returned to his seat. And you know, McDonald's a Christian. And in the back of his mind, he thought, God will come through for me. I'll get a seat. Uh, In all honesty, he says, I expected to be able to say to my confrontational friend, there's a better way. There's a better way to get things done than shouting and cursing at people. And that when he hears this and sees that, he's going to be so impressed by my behavior that he's going to come up and ask me about that better way. And I'm going to be able to share the good news with him. And I'll probably just lead him to the faith right there. And you you know how the stories go. You've heard them. He says, I really did expect this. Well, what happened instead, McDonald says, was that my blustering comrade boarded the flight and headed home while I sat there for a day and a half in Hong Kong. No flight, no good impression, no chance to share my faith. Gordon McDonald says, I learned a really important lesson on that day, and the lesson is this. Christian character doesn't always result in the kind of success we expect. We don't develop Christ-like character, he says, because it brings us success. We develop it because it's the right way, the God-pleasing way to live, no matter what. In Paul's day, it wasn't unusual for a teacher or a philosopher to come into a city like Corinth, the city that we're going to be studying in 2 Corinthians, and to set up shop. 
if they were knowledgeable enough, you know, like an Aristotle or a Plato, or if they were provocative enough, there was one philosopher that came in and acted literally like a dog and lived in a, in a little tub in the middle of town. He was provocative. Or if they were entrepreneurial enough, if they could you know, just figure out how to get clients, it was relatively easy for them to attract students and charge them for lessons, and they could make a pretty good lesson doing all of this. In fact, it was kind of the ancient equivalent of you know, taking your degree online. Nobody considered it the least bit unusual. It's just what people did. With Paul, though, things were different. The Corinthians didn't just find Paul's method and his method peculiar. They found it downright offensive, and we need to get at that to to understand what's going on in this passage. So let me show you a slide. Show you uh, Corinth. It's a little difficult to see, but Corinth is right there in the middle of our map. And Rome is to the one side, and way down here in Jerusalem is to the other side. And as traffic made its way through the empire from east to west, from Asia to, you know, Europe and, and the like, Corinth, you can see, is kind of strategically placed. Actually, if you had to go around that little peninsula there that looks kind of like a hand hanging down, that was an extra six-day trip. And so you could actually save time and money. With Corinth, they sat on this little isthmus, the little finger-like thing in there, and they didn't actually have anything like the Panama Canal, but they would actually onboard a ship, take all the the goods and things off of it. They would uh, take them across land, which wasn't really that long, it was a couple of miles, and then they would reboard on another ship, put them on another ship, and they saved time and they saved money by doing that. So Corinth was a seaport city, and it was strategically located. Now, the original city of Corinth had been destroyed, oh, say, about 146 B.C. That's almost 200 years before the Apostle Paul wandered into town. But you remember the name Julius Caesar. Julius Caesar took that old Greek city, and he turned it into a Roman colony, and he used it as a way of uh, rewarding his soldiers. When Julius Caesar would conquer, uh, he would promise his soldiers, you know, you're going to see some of the benefit of this. Well, one of the benefits is that when they had a city like Corinth, he would just relocate his soldiers there and give them land grants and give them property and give them places to live. So there were a lot of Roman soldiers there. Uh, there were also some people from Rome that uh, had formerly been slaves and they had been entrepreneurial enough, they'd earned enough money that they bought their own freedom. Some of them settled there in New Corinth. Uh, and then there were just the other people, the people that started coming to uh, Corinth just because, well, you know, it offered them a chance to, to uh, have a better life, to experience something they weren't experiencing where they were in their own stagnant kinds of economies. And so Corinth had become something of a magnet for people who were socially ambitious. One commentator says it like this. says, An enterprising person could rise quickly through the accumulation of wealth at Corinth. And it seems that in Paul's time, many in the city were already suffering from a self-made person's escape humble origin syndrome. You know, I pulled myself up by my own bootstraps. I worked myself there. Surely you can work yourself there too. That's just the way they thought in Corinth. The Corinthians, it seems, had reached something of sort of a cultural consensus. Their cultural consensus was that 
You know, if you live the good life, if you live the normal life, if you live the right kind of life, well, you know, you should expect prosperity and you should expect success. Nobody challenged it. Everybody just accepted it as true. It was just the way people thought in Corinth. Enter the Apostle Paul. The typical Corinthian would have expected somebody like Paul, you know, one of those teachers or philosophers, to come to their city and teach them how to live the good life. You know, how to get on in the world. How to avoid pain. How to avoid causing pain to other people. And Paul did say, I I preach gospel. I preach good news. I'm bringing you good news. But the gospel, the good news that Paul brought, wasn't the typical Corinthian expectation of the promise of good life. Let me just give you three quick snapshots here. We'll show these on slides so you don't need to turn there. But the first one is in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 3 and 4. It's in this very opening passage that Pastor Rick dealt with last week. It says, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Wonderful statement of praise. The Father of compassion. Oh, aren't you just glad to hear that? The God of all comfort. What a wonderful statement. And here's the problem. Who comforts us in all our... What? in all our troubles. Now the Corinthians weren't looking for somebody to give them comfort in trouble. The Corinthians were looking for somebody to keep them out of trouble, to show them the good life. What do you mean trouble, Paul? They found this definition of the good life unsettling. There was something unnatural about what Paul was saying, about this emphasis on troubles. That's snapshot one. You'll see several others, but snapshot two that I want to show you is in chapter 11. Oh, let's look at verse 9. The Apostle Paul is explaining his process of delivering the gospel. He would go into an unevangelized territory, and he says, When I was with you and needed something, I was not going to be a burden to you. I wasn't going to weigh you down. The Apostle Paul actually worked pretty hard in his life. He was a tent maker. He worked in leather tents. By the way, there's probably a good business in tent making in Corinth. Uh, he met Aquila and Priscilla there, and they had some of the what they called Isthmian Games, or sort of like Olympics, and they needed tents for people that would come to the city. Apostle Paul probably made pretty good money just being a tent maker there. He could support himself, but it was hard work. His hands would get gnarled, and you can just imagine, you know, the kind of just working with leather all day long, making tents. That's what Paul did. He, he would probably work about the middle of the afternoon when it got real hot, and everybody else would go take their siesta. And then he would rent a place where he could, you know, offer lessons on Christianity. What does it mean to be a Christian? And then he would work sometimes late into the evening, visiting from house to house to house to the new converts that he had made. The problem for the Corinthians was that Paul offered his gospel freely. And you know, it's true, isn't it? That you get what you pay for. If something costs nothing, it must be worth nothing. And you know, we don't want our apostle to be working for crying out loud. We want him to, you know, sort of represent the lifestyle. Sort of, you know, live the lifestyle. And Paul didn't. Well, then there's this third uh, snapshot in chapter 11, verses 24 and 25. Just a really loaded phrase here. It says, Five times I received from the Jews 40 lashes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods, and once I was stoned. Now, two thoughts about this interesting passage. Thought number one, 
Why five beatings from the Jews? I mean, I would have thought one beating would have enough, and I would have stayed away from the synagogues, you know, forever, wouldn't you? Paul took five beatings, 39 lashes from the Jews. Now, why would he do that? We see the 39 lashes was a punishment for teaching aberrant doctrine. And because the Apostle Paul wanted to continue to preach the gospel to the Jews, he was willing not to take a beating once and then to be chastened for it, not just twice and then to be chastened for it, five times and to be chastened for it. You get it. It was a part of his methodology, just like working with his own hands. Now, the other thing you should notice about this is that Corinth is made up, by and large, of Greeks at this time, although it had been fairly well Romanized. But the Greeks worshipped the perfect body. They loved beauty. They loved proportion. You've seen some of the Greek statues. And here's the Apostle Paul coming along. Let me, let me show you this next uh, picture here. It's really hard. We, they didn't have cameras in those days, little cell phones that you could take the picture so we really don't know what Paul looked like. This uh, is a fresco. It's the first known representation of uh, the Apostle Paul that somebody was guessing at his appearance about 400 years after the Apostle Paul died. It was discovered in a catacomb in the city of Rome. Now, as Holly and I were on the Internet looking for a picture of Paul to show you a little bit of what he must have looked like, we discovered something really interesting. We're, we're kind of Corinthian in what we expect of Paul. I saw some really heroic pictures of Paul, you know, some, some really masculine pictures of Paul some good-looking pictures of Paul. There are even pictures of Paul that he almost looked like Jesus, you know, and he had halos in some of these pictures. Not once did I see the Apostle Paul that looked like he had been beaten with 39 stripes. And can you imagine the scars and what that would do to you? Wouldn't that bend you over after you'd had a certain amount of beatings in your life? Imagine the Apostle Paul coming to a church picnic and everybody decides to go down to the beach and the Apostle Paul takes off his toga and you look at his back and you I mean, it's got to be pretty awful looking. It wasn't the Greek ideal. He wasn't pretty, people. He was, he was stooped, he was beaten, he had all the scars and the marks of being in a... He didn't fit. It didn't work for the Corinthians. So Paul had an image problem. In a city where social climbing and physical attractiveness was a major preoccupation. Sound familiar? Paul deliberately stepped down uh, from appearance status... And as unattractive as a result of the abuse he took, and this would have been seen by many, this commentator says, as disturbing to the Corinthians, as disgusting to them, and even provocative. You see, the Corinthians didn't get it. And their misunderstanding led to mistrust. And mistrust led to innuendo, and there were all kinds of rumors about the Apostle Paul in the Corinthian church. So that by the time we come to our passage, as Pastor Rick mentioned last week, there's already been three letters written to the Corinthians. He's gone through all of this process with them, and Paul is still under attack. In fact, by now, the heavy artillery is aimed at him. And there are five major blasts that his enemies are making toward the Apostle Paul. And we had to kind of mirror read this passage. We're getting Paul's response to them, but we can read between the lines to see what the attacks were. So look at verse 12 to give the first attack that was being made on Paul. 
He says in verse 12 of chapter 1, Now this is our boast. Our conscience testifies that we have conducted ourselves in the world and especially in our relationship with you in holiness and sincerity that are from God. Now I want you to focus on that word sincerity. Because what the Apostle Paul is trying to do is to assure them that he's been above board. At Corinth, they made pottery. At least that was one of the things they did. And if a pot was cracked and some deceitful, you know, owner of a shop, a merchandiser, wanted to cover up the crack, he would fill it with wax. And then he would paint it over. To be sincere, the Greek word here, means to be without wax. They were accusing the Apostle Paul to be a cracked pot. They were accusing him of covering over his flaws. There was something he was trying to hide. He was not above board with them. So he has to defend himself against that accusation. He was insincere, they said. Now, verses 13 and 14, it says, We do not write to you anything you cannot read or understand. Now, I got to tell you, Paul can be hard. He can be difficult when you're reading some of these letters the Apostle Paul has written. Even Peter said, our brother Paul writes things that are difficult to understand. I get that. But the Corinthians were using this against him and say, you know, he has a lack of clarity. We think there's some deception going on. He's playing a shell game with words here. Yeah, he, he's kind of slipping something underneath with words. So they were accusing him of being deviously unclear. They went out of their way to misunderstand him. Then uh, if you look at verses 15, 16, and 17, actually verse 17 is the key verse. Paul had made some promises to visit them. His plans had changed. Nothing the Apostle Paul could do pleased the Corinthians, so they turned this in an accusation against them. Look at verse 17. He says, When I plan to do this, do, do you think I plan to do it lightly? Or do I make my plans in a worldly manner so that in the same breath I say yes, yes, and no, no? Now that's the tip-off. The other place in the New Testament we hear about yes, yes, and no, no is in the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus says, let your yes be yes and your no be no. It appears that somebody at Corinth were saying that Paul wasn't just insincere and he wasn't just deviously unclear. He actually violated the teaching of Jesus as it found on the Sermon on the Mount. What kind of an apostle is that? That's a major critique. Then the fourth thing you'll see down in verse 23. We'll skip the middle section there come back to that in just a second it says in verse 23 verse 24 is really where I want to uh, to focus in it says not that we lord it over your faith but we work with you for your joy it's that word lording it over they thought the apostle Paul what he really wanted was power he had really come to Corinth to build a following so that he could dominate the people in these small churches so he could rule them so he could lord it over their faith. At least that was the accusation. And then the last accusation is in chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. And I'm not going to take the time to read through the passage, but I want you to look at something in this passage. When you get a chance, notice that there are eight references in these four verses to words like grief, anguish, distress, and tears. 
Paul is defending himself. He says, I I didn't come to you to cause grief. I I didn't intend to bring you anguish. It wasn't my intent to distress you or to bring tears to the congregation. Somebody in the congregation was beginning to accuse the Apostle Paul of actually being malicious. He wants to do us harm. He's trying to hurt us. Now, those are some pretty big guns aimed at the Apostle. Uh, I used to do some consulting with churches and You know, one of the things I discovered is if you walk into a church and they've got a list, if somebody in the church has a list, you've got some problems. And somebody in this church had a list. And the Apostle Paul is finding himself having to defend himself. Now, typically, I have to tell you that Paul was like Billy Graham, or maybe Billy Graham was like Paul, didn't defend himself uh, against personal accusations or attacks. In two cases, he breaks that rule. One of them is in the book of Galatians. He does defend himself. And another one is here. And each time he does it, he teaches us something profoundly significant. And I think he operates at two levels in this passage. We're going to look at the surface level. And then we're going to look at a deep level real quickly of what the Apostle Paul does with all these accusations that are aimed at him because of misunderstanding. First, back in verse 12. Now, I don't know about you, but somebody comes at me with a list. The first thing I want to do is just write them off. You got your list. You got a vendetta. You're out to try to prove something. I'm not going to pay any attention to you. Paul doesn't do that. Verse 12, he says, Our boast is this. Our conscience testified that we have conducted ourselves correctly in the world. In other words... He accepts the accusations that the Corinthians have brought against him uh, as true, as proper tests. And you know, that's a real sign of a person, isn't it? People come to you, they have their list, and you say, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to take this list and I'm going to use it as a way of examining myself. But this, this really isn't a bad list. You're looking for somebody to follow in the Christian world? Are they sincere? Are they clear? Is their teaching consistent with what Jesus taught? Are they empowering rather than power-seeking? Do they have your best interests at heart? Those are some pretty good tests, I would have to say. And Paul takes those tests, and he uses them, and he says, Okay, I don't think I've broken any, but I accept your tests. That's the first thing he does. Now, the second thing, after he accepts the test, as he begins to examine himself before God to see if these tests, he says, my conscience is clear. I've checked myself out before God. Remind me of a passage in the Old Testament. Uh, does something very similar to David in the Old Testament in 2 Samuel. In 2 Samuel, there's this story of David approaching the city of Bahurim. Uh, And a man came out from a clan of Saul's family. Saul was the former king, and David succeeded him. Came out, and uh, his name was Shimei. And he cursed as he came out. He didn't like David. Obviously, he was one of David's enemies. And he pelted David and all the king's officials with stones. So here's this royal entourage. Imagine President Obama surrounded by his cabinet, and they're making their way along, and there's somebody standing over there throwing rocks and dirt and so on and so on. You get the picture of what's going on here. Well, as he cursed, Shemai said, You man of blood, you scoundrel. Now, I'm not going to try to translate that Hebrew word for you for scoundrel, but that's a rough word. That's a harsh, harsh word in the Old Testament. 
The Lord has repaid you for all the blood you shed in the household of Saul in whose place you have reigned. Now remember, David at this point is running from a rebellion in his own kingdom led by one of his own sons. Then Abishai, one of David's rulers, says to the king, Why should this dead dog curse my lord the king? Let me go over and cut off his head. Now I've got to tell you, that's my first reaction to people. You know, whenever Ron says something about, you know, dead dog, off with his head. Okay? Not so David. David said, leave him alone, let him curse, for the Lord has told him to do this. Now, do you see that? David is saying that nothing happens in the Christian or the believer's life that God doesn't permit. And if God has permitted an attack upon your character, God has allowed that for a specific reason. He's trying to train you. There's something he's trying to teach. David saw that clearly. Shimei was no accident. And so David wanted to make sure he handled that correctly. He says, it may be that the Lord will see my distress and repay me with good for the cursing I'm receiving today. Romans 8, 28, God takes all things and works them together for good to them that love him. Even people's cursings and attacks, God can bring good out of them. This is David's attitude. So David and his men continued along with the road while Shemai was going along the hillside opposite him, cursing as he went and throwing stones at him and showering him with dirt. Now some lessons, real quick lessons to learn from David and from Paul concerning people that attack us, especially when we're in the Christian faith. And it's this. Lesson number one, if there is criticism against us, then we need to listen for God's voice. God allows the criticisms. And when we hear criticism, we need to see, is there something deeper going on here than just a human? They may, there may be something going on here that's coming from God. Number two, if there's truth in the criticism, and there may or may not be, but if there is truth in this criticism, then I need, my responsibility is to listen and to learn the truth. And then number three, if there are sins or issues that I need to address, if there's truth in the criticism, and I got to get something straight, then do it. The Nike commercial, just do it. Why do we fight and resist? David talked about when he committed his sin of adultery, and he said, and I tried to fight it, and I tried to fight it, and my bones waxed all day long inside. The inner pain that comes, just deal with it. Just get it out of the way. Give the apology. Straighten the thing out. Move on with your life. That's what David and Paul teach us. And then leave the outcome to God. Live your life as best as you can and leave things to God. That's what, Paul, what's what Pastor Rick was teaching us when he to, told us, to, took us through Romans chapter 12, verses 19 through 21. And I just invite you to turn there. Now that, that's, a, that's Paul's first level response. But there's a deeper response that Paul's going to bring to this criticism. And it's the one that's going to get really theological. And so I want to quickly bang through verses 18 through 22 to show you that on top of this level response, Paul does all these things. But then he adds a layer that says, now, let me give you, if these tests are good, let me give you four really powerful tests. So four surefire tests for examining a man and his message if he's proclaiming the gospel of God. Four tests. Test number one, four sure, four sure signs that a preacher and his message are true. Sign number one, you see it in the whole passage. 
the true gospel, when it's proclaimed, will make me Trinitarian. Trinitarian. That is, it'll make me believe in, well, you see it here, verse 18. But as surely as God is faithful. That's a reference to God the Father. And then look at verse 19 of 2 Corinthians chapter 1. For the Son of God, Jesus Christ. There's God the Son. And then if you'll drop down to verse 22, I'm going to stop just a few, start just a few words before that. He, God, anointed us, set his seal of ownership on us, and put his spirit in us. That's a Trinitarian reference. For Paul, for any true teacher of the gospel, the gospel is always wrapped up with the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And if you can sit under a man's teaching for any period of time and you're not brought into a deeper understanding and a closer relationship with God in his Trinitarian sense, well, that person has led you wrong, is what the Apostle Paul is saying here. The Trinity is part of the grammar of our faith. It's part of the way we think. It's part of the way we talk. Every major writing of the New Testament contains sections like this where it's just almost assumed. Paul doesn't try to prove the Trinity here. He just assumes it here. And it took the church a while to put that together into a modern definition, but it's all there. It's all there. A famous philosopher once complained that The doctrine of the Trinity provides nothing of practical value, even if one claimed to understand it. Paul, all Christian teachers, all that you can believe in would disagree with that. In fact, C.S. Lewis said, you know, if you see it correctly, there's one surefire example of how the Trinity works even in your ordinary life. An ordinary, simple Christian kneels down to say his or her prayers. They're trying to get in touch with God. But if he's a Christian, he knows that what is prompting him to pray is also God. God, so to speak, above, and God to speak inside of him. But also he knows that all his real knowledge of God comes through Christ, the man who was God. (laughs) The man who was God. That Christ is standing beside him, helping him to pray, praying for him. You see what is happening, Lewis says? God is the thing to which he is praying, the goal to which he's trying to reach. God is also the thing inside of him, pushing him along, the motive power. God is also the road or the bridge along which he's being pushed toward that goal so that the whole threefold life of the three personal being is actually going on in that ordinary little bedroom where an ordinary man or woman are saying their ordinary prayers. That's the way a true teacher of the Christian faith will lead you to believe and, and, and if a person doesn't believe and think and act that way, well, you've got to evaluate the message. One sure way to evaluate the gospel message is, does it make me more Trinitarian? The second thing you'll see in verse 18, it's in this phrase, surely as God is faithful. Now, I've already mentioned to you that this reference is to God the Father. As surely as God the Father is faithful, the true gospel will always deepen my experience of the Father's care. I'll feel Him, not just hear Him. 
There's a book uh, written by a businessman. His name is Max Dupree. It's called Leadership is an Art. He tells a story of his own, from his own life that I think kind of illustrates what Paul is attempting to get at here. Dupree's daughter was expecting a child just about the same time her husband left her. Now, whether it was from stress or from some other reason, uh, the little baby was born three months prematurely. And when Dupree went to see this grandson of his for the very first time, he found uh, this little boy in intensive care. He said, hardly as, as large as my hand. And he had all those wires and tubes and connecting things running in and out of his body. He said, at just about that time, the senior nurse came in. The nurse said, Mr. Dupree, for the next three months, you're going to be this baby's surrogate father. And here's what I'd like you to do. When you come, you put your hands inside that crib and you rub that little guy's back and you talk to him at the same time. It's important that your voice and your touch go together. Premature babies especially need that for security. So Dupree would do that. He would go in day after day and he would put his hand in the crib and he would fondle the baby and he would, in his big booming grandfather's voice, simply talk at the end of the process, he said, that, I believe, is a great picture of Christian leadership. And I think it is, too. And I think that's exactly what the Apostle Paul is saying. A true preacher not only makes me Trinitarian, a true preacher helps me to hear the voice and feel the touch of God. The Father becomes real to me in a significant way. A third test the Apostle Paul puts in here has to do with this word, yes. And, and I want you to look at verse, oh, let's say, 19. The Son of God, Jesus Christ, preached among you, was not yes and no, but in Him has always been yes. Now, what is Paul trying to get at there? Well, the best way I can frame this is sort of like this. Do you ever love somebody that didn't love you back? I went to college in the 60s and... Uh, I had a roommate my freshman year, his name was Johnny. Johnny's sweetheart was back home, and she was a senior in high school. Johnny was just head over heels in love with this young lady that he had had to leave home. And he would sit in the evenings, and he would write love notes to her. Now, it weren't your typical love note. Johnny went out and bought this huge roll of toilet paper. And on this roll of toilet paper, he would write, I love you, I love you, I love you, I love you. Just cram as many I love yous as he could across the first line. Line two, I love you, I love you, I love you, I love you. Line three, I love you, I love you, I love you. I love you, 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 I love you. Finish the whole roll, right? You can imagine that took a while. I don't know how he got any of his homework done. He crammed all that into an envelope and he sent it to her. I've often wondered, you know, what do you think she thought when she opened this and this is told this toilet paper with I love you, 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 written all over it. Fast forward. Second year, Johnny's now a sophomore. The senior in high school is now a freshman. She's not on campus three weeks before she falls as madly head over heels in love with a young man from New Jersey as Johnny had been in love with her. And it broke his heart. Now this is in the 1960s when you either went to college or you went to Vietnam. And Johnny dropped out of college. And he went to Vietnam. And I have no idea what's become of him since. Do you ever love somebody that didn't love you back? I have decided to follow Jesus. I've decided to follow Jesus. 
I've decided to follow Jesus. Big, fat deal. What if Jesus hadn't decided to love you back? All the promises are yes in Jesus. That's what Paul said. And it is a big deal. He says, the true gospel will always declare God's yes in Jesus over you. And that's how you can tell. That's how you can tell if a man's delivering the right message and if it's the right man. The true gospel will always tell you yes in Jesus. And then real quickly, Paul's last point, you'll see it in one word. It's just before verse 21 and verse 20. It says, and so through him the amen is spoken. Amen means what? Amen means let it be so or it is true. It is true. Now, Paul had just written to the Corinthians, a previous letter in 1 Corinthians, that no person can say Jesus is Lord unless the Holy Spirit is living in him, unless the Holy Spirit prompts him. Now, Paul would have also said, and think he does say it in this passage, you can't say amen to the truth of the message unless the Spirit is living in you. So, when somebody preaches the gospel, When you hear the Trinitarian Father Care, Yes in Jesus gospel, does it make you say, Amen, let it be true? Guess what? That's a proof that the Spirit is at work in your life. That's a proof that this person is telling you the truth and can be relied on. Four tests of reliability added to the five that we saw earlier. So in conclusion, talk again about Christian integrity. Christian integrity means, at one level, we're above board in our relationships. That's true, isn't it? Should be. That means we're clear and trustworthy in our spoken word. That's true at one level, isn't it? More interested in serving others than in being served. Now that, that's true of Christians, isn't it? Why is it true? And that's what Paul got at in that center section Christians live those ways because they have learned to trust the Father. They have found their security in the yes of the Son. And they have experienced the work of the Holy Spirit in their lives. Where you see those two things to come together, you have a true messenger. You have the true message. You have the integrity of God's Word. And where does the good life and prosperity And success fit in all of this? Well, I think Gordon MacDonald had captured it pretty well, don't you? Christ-like character doesn't always result in the kind of success we want or expect. We don't develop Christ-like character because it brings us success. We develop Christian character because it's the right way the God-pleasing way to live. Would you join me in a word of prayer? Lord, I thank you for this powerful message from your word. I know, Lord, that it's probed all of our hearts. And so we ask, God, that you would continue to help us to follow the way of truth in a world that's determined to go the Corinthian way. We ask for your help in Jesus' name. Amen.